You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, January 19, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Darius Dale. Uh, but first, here's what's happening. It looks like NASDAQ is officially into correction territory. This is the NASDAQ composite closing out the day at 14,340, uh, off the high of 16,057 on 19 November 2021. Lots happening uh, against a backdrop of inflation and rising rates. We've got the perfect guest with us today to discuss it, Darius Dale. Darius, it's been a minute. It's macro time. It's Darius Dale time. What's going on, man? It's been too long, mate. <laughs> I've been told that if I present the show in an English accent, I'll sound smarter. <laughs> We're not supposed to mention it, though. We should just roll with it. So, Darius, <laughs> listen. I know that I, I, you know, it's it's always hard for people who love watching markets, right? You clearly, this is experiencing people who are U.S. equity investors experiencing some pain here. But there's something going on here in markets. It's obviously an exciting time to be doing what you do on the macro side. Tell us, how are you thinking about this? The broad context of what's happening right now. Yeah, I think that great question. Uh, so uh, it's great to be back. Appreciate everyone for joining and tuning in. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of open it up with a quick summary, and then we can unpack it from there. You know, I think this will probably be the first of many corrections we're likely to see uh, throughout the, the the year 2022. Obviously, it's pretty clear now that the Fed is on a durable path towards policy tightening that we're not quite sure um, is fully priced in. We think there's a little bit more to go in terms of baking in marking expectations on what they're likely to do over the next 12 to 18 months with respect to the policy rate and the balance sheet. And then with respect to kind of the, the near-term trajectory, I've, I've, I've talked about this on the program over the last couple of months, but 2022 is going to be a year of normalization. Uh, it's going to be a year of normalization and growth. And the real key question is, how fast does growth slow and normalize back towards its trend? If it happens all at once, it happens all, you know, kind of in 2022, we're going to have a lot more and a lot deeper corrections. Uh, we're also going to see a normalization in inflation. Um, the speed with which inflation normalizes will have a direct impact on policy tightening because, again, the Fed is a levels-oriented institution. Markets tend to focus on the rate of change, but the Fed will react to the level of inflation at various intervals throughout the year. And then thirdly, the normalization of monetary and fiscal policy, and I would argue as a function of those two uh, processes, we're likely to see normalization uh, in asset market valuations, particularly in the sectors of the market, namely high beta risk assets. Uh, that have enjoyed a, a really, really good run um, and the back, you know, the kind of a, on the on the tailwinds of his sort of record growth accelerations, inflation accelerations, obviously record nominal growth or you know near record nominal growth, and obviously some very aggressive monetary and fiscal easing. So we can unpack any of that. Uh, happy to uh, go deeper. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. That's a very comprehensive view of what's happening. Uh, obviously, uh, some some normalization, uh, or at least more trending toward mean reversion, I guess you could say, uh, on some of the rates that you've mentioned. Uh, also, the, the Fed policy action. Let's specifically talk to something you brought up, because you have a great chart uh, today in your research note. Uh, U.S. inflation, uh, two charts, actually, U.S. inflation secular view and U.S. inflation cyclical view. Talking precisely to that point, unpack what you're seeing here as you see this rate looking like it's mean reverting, at least on these charts. 
Yeah, absolutely. So those charts contain uh, the CPI chart uh, contains our, our, you know, kind of the, the time series of inflation on, on the U.S. basis. And then we sort of project, uh, we show our, our two different models that we project inflation and, and kind of there's a couple key takeaways. One, we're sort of traversing the peak in inflation. And I don't think we're you know particularly alone in making that view that a lot of economists sort of share that view. Uh, one thing I think it's important to note in that chart is if you look at sort of the if you look at our forecast, we're running two separate models with stationary mean reversion model, and then there's our nowcast model, and one's more of a autoregressive framework. And that autoregressive framework, which is based on mean reversion on previous cycles, takes you to a level of inflation, and it's the same with growth, a level of inflation that's significantly below consensus, uh, significantly below um, uh, consensus for growth in particular. But if you sort of if you run the the same process with the nowcast features, you actually get a much more sticky level of inflation. So that you could argue that um, if you train the model, what that really means is if you're training the model based on what's happening in the pandemic, you're going to have a higher level inflation of inflation throughout 2022. And if you train the model based on what's happened in previous cycles, you're likely to decay and decelerate for much much quickly, much more substantially throughout this year. So that obviously has policy implications. But when you put up that chart for growth GDP. It's the same yeah. dynamic, but I would argue it's even more disparate. And so the kind of in my point from my, I think the key takeaway from all this is if we get a sharper than expected normalization in inflation, we're likely to see the Fed back off um, on on monetary tightening at some point this year. But I don't think that's the bullish panacea that investors want because that also likely coincide with a sharper than expected deceleration in growth, which is a right. very, very big uh, sort of headwind for asset markets and something I think could uh, come into question kind of in the middle of this year. Yeah. Talk to what you see happening right now in terms of growth here in the U.S. Uh, obviously, a critical driver of uh, of what's happening in equity markets uh, and more broadly in asset markets. What do you see happening there? In terms of the, the growth value dynamic? Well, we can talk about that as well, which is an interesting point. Uh, give us a sense of what you think about in terms of the, the relationship of growth uh, to earnings, growth to valuations. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. So, you know, we also going to see normal the normalization again is the theme. I'm, next time I come here, I'm going to have a sweatshirt that says normalization, hashtag normalization. But we're going to see normalization in earnings. And, and, you know, I think the biggest normalization earnings doesn't have anything to do with the growth rate. Because everyone knows that earnings growth are going to are likely to come down, and we're likely to right. see more margin pressure than we've seen thus far in the pandemic. Margins are at an all-time high for the S and P, so they have nowhere to go but down in that regard. And the speed of the growth normalization process will really dictate that. But when you talk about normalization on earnings, in my perspective, the one thing that I'm noting thus far throughout Q4 earnings season, 43 of the 500 S and P companies that have reported, and we're actually seeing a continued decay. In the beat rate of both sales and earnings, um, you know we we're pretty uh, pretty low in both in terms of the Q3 earnings season, and part of that was sort of chalked up to Delta and things of that nature. But what, the, what that's really telling me is that we're sort of the market is really get, losing its ability to sort of save the day with microeconomic fundamentals, and when you lose the ability to save the day with microeconomic fundamentals, that puts the more onus on macroeconomic developments, change in growth, change in inflation, change in policy settings. Uh, to be the real key driver of asset markets. And very clearly, and from our perspective, uh, all those sort of major drivers, growth, inflation, and policy being the kind of principal components there, uh, are all moving in the wrong direction. So markets are likely to continue to have a tough time this year. I don't think this is the kind of the real big correction we expect. We think that correction is very likely to commence sometime like late Q1, maybe early to mid Q2, in terms of our growth models and what that's likely to project at that time frame. And so we do believe you can buy this dip, um, but the reality is we're likely to be selling that rip 
um, at some point over the matter of the next couple of months. Right. This is a crucial point, thinking about it at the tactical versus strategic level, thinking and talking about multiple time horizons, uh, how you can be short-term bullish, but longer-term uh, or intermediate-term bearish. Yep, yeah. Very. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is something we talk about as well in just terms of helping you know coach uh, retail high net worth individuals, RAs type investors, institutional folks get this a lot. But you know when you're constructing a portfolio, it's not supposed to just represent your general view. You're I'm bullish or I'm bearish or you know I have this long you know very uh, long term secular view on growth or inflation or things of that nature. It's supposed to represent a combination right. of views that are both laid out across durations, short, medium, long term, but also laid out across themes, you know, secular inflation, secular deflation. At 42 Macro, uh, our themes are predicated on what we call our grid process, uh, which sort of marries the rate of change of growth and inflation to produce four distinct outcomes uh, from the perspective of, of asset allocation. This Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, deflation. I'll let everyone go to our website to get more color on that. But the reality is, you know, at any given time, you know, in terms of how we're helping investors construct their portfolio and manage a lot of these building macro risk, it's all about understanding how those grid regime probabilities are changing in real time and making the appropriate pivots to sort of balance the portfolio in accordance uh, with those, those changing probabilities. Yeah. By the way, to call back to something we were just talking about a second ago, uh, it appeared that this uh, that for Q4 21, we saw relatively weak earnings from banks, from financial institutions. By and large, the story there seemed to be uh, relatively strong revenue, but rising costs eating into earnings. I guess that looks a little bit like an inflation scenario, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, you know, so there's been three uh, economic releases in the past few months that have really uh, helped us change our tune on, on sort of the Fed's policy setting. Uh, wouldn't necessarily say we traded it all well perfectly, but certainly it's helped us sort of get up to speed on a lot of what that's happened uh, in asset markets over the last few weeks, which is, you know, go back to the uh, the October CPI print. In our opinion, that October CPI print striking to the upside really took away the fiscal policy agenda, the incremental fiscal easing we were likely to see from a build back better perspective. And then when we got the sort of November jobs report in early December, followed by the December jobs report in early January, to us, we saw some step function increases higher or jump conditions in the improvement in some of the sort of more beleaguered parts of the labor market, whether you look at, um, you know, sort of the female labor force participation rate, whether you look at the labor force, uh, the unemployment rate, rather, uh, for you know individuals that are maybe black, Hispanic, with a high school diploma, lacking a high school diploma, all these sort of pockets of the labor market where our quote unquote woke Fed is, is you know, kind of really focused on, you know, we saw some positive jump conditions or jump conditions in the positive direction the last couple of months that told us, hey, look, the Fed has lost the ability to cite the labor market as a reason to remain easy. In hmm. fact, I would argue, going back to your question on inflation, if you look at the inf wage inflation dynamics, I mean, we're, we're, we're starting to get, we're, we're getting to a scary point. So uh, looking at average weekly earnings in the uh, December jobs report, that accelerated to a 12% seasonally adjusted annualized rate of change. That's the fastest rate we've seen since March of last year. So clearly seeing a buildup in wage pressures, and I think the more important dynamic with respect to wage pressures comes from uh, kind of twofold. One, the lack of labor supply. Uh, we're seeing that with the uh, prime working age uh, labor force participation rate in the most recent print. I think that was at uh, 81.9. That number hasn't budged in six months. And so that's part of the reason we, uh, we showed this wage chart. Uh, uh, Brian, if you could put that wage chart up. The reason that the, we're up and to the right with respect to wages, the red line is the employment cost index, is because the blue line, the quits rate, is at an all-time high. 
Uh, that right. we get that data out of the Jones data. And so very clearly, folks who are sort of still very much attached to the labor force are looking around and saying, hey, there's just less people doing what I do, and there's more demand for my, as much demand as ever for my services right. if you cite the Jones data. So let me go find higher wages. And that's exactly um, what I believe you said. Uh, J.P. Morgan was citing that as well. I believe Goldman yep. and David Solomon was out today talking about that as well. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, one of the things I always appreciate about uh, these conversations, Darius, is that you dig in into the internal dynamics beneath the headline numbers on these reports, which is so important to do to really understand the full context of what's happening uh, in these markets. I also wanted to do, talk a little bit about the Fed, since you've mentioned it, uh, and it's come up a number of times. Uh, you know, We were talking uh, about this and, and reading some of the, the uh, tweets that you've put out. The Fed, obviously, figuring out what is happening with the trajectory of the rate path, understanding the way back to policy normalization. These are all absolutely crucial things to understanding where these markets are headed. And I wanted to call out to a video. Uh, this is done by our own Roger Hurst, an insider's talk, uh, how should we think about interest rates and inflation, running today on Real Vision on our pro tier. Speaking precisely to this point, let's take a look. Now, the second one is going to be bonds. And the bonds, um, the bonds framework, I'm going to kick off with really just thinking about what's going to happen this year and then comparing it with what we've already seen over the last 10. So this chart that I've got here is the Fed's balance sheet versus Fed funds. And the reason why I'm showing this is sequencing, the sequencing of the end of QE to tightening to QT. It really started back in 2013, this first cycle, because we had the taper announcement, the taper tantrum, yield screamed higher. Well, already we can see a difference between then and now in that this time we've had a taper announcement and yields have edged a little bit higher, not particularly, we're still below 170. But what is, is sort of the, the, the key differential here is the time frame. So we had the taper announcement in 2013, we had the actual taper of Q in 2014, and it was pretty much done by the end of 2014. Then we had a year before rates started to rise. And then towards the end of 2017 is when we started to see quantitative tightening, where we saw the proper sell-off sell or rundown of the Fed's balance sheet. Before then, things had run off. It had gently been, been um, flatlining, slightly going lower. But this was anywhere between five and a half years, four years at best, between the taper announcement and QT before eventually QT and rate hikes caused the equity market to implode at the end of 2018. Today, we're talking about doing all of that so the end of QE to nothing, no purchases, to rate hikes, so that's going to be March, March, to potentially QT tightening, selling the, the balance sheet, all in a matter of six months versus three and a half, four years before. It's happening at a much faster pace. So there you have it, the great Roger Hurst doing what he does so well on Real Vision, breaking it all down, talking about the sequencing and the acceleration of the rate at which monetary policy is being normalized. Darius, what are your thoughts on this uh, in a broader sense? Yeah, no, so the, the, the Fed, and, and by the way, that was an excellent clip, the Fed is trying to engineer a reduction, a significant reduction in inflation pressures in the economy without tightening financial conditions. 
right? Like that, that's preposterous. They're not going to be able to do that. I suspect the the more sort of markets oriented uh, folks at the Fed um, are, are going to do that. We're certainly losing them if you think about Clarita leaving. But the reality is, I think they know um, at the end of the day that the joke is on them and with respect to that expectation. They're going to have to tighten financial conditions in order to, to relieve some of the sort of pressure, the demand pressure uh, out of the US economy in order to get inflation supply demand dynamics back under control. Because the risk, if they don't do this, is that the wage pressure that we're starting to see really starts to build up. And by the time the base effects sort of kick out, because right now they're kicking in to take inflation down from a cyclical perspective. But once those base effects kick out, let's say early 2023, we might be at a significantly higher level of inflation than the Fed may be comfortable with in terms of you know perpetuating both longer-term inflation expectations higher and also just you know, for our consumers, but also uh, perpetuating higher inflation expectations in the market. And I think the Fed is going to have to take some poison, um, if you will, uh, in order to prevent that longer-term doomsday scenario. If they don't take the poison and to predict that longer-term doomsday scenario, you're not going to have a, a, a rocky as rocky 2022 as we currently expect you will. Um, we put up that chart, that market cycle chart. That's kind of my favorite chart. I think that's the most important chart out there for 2022, which is understanding where you are in the market cycle. When global growth, the blue line in that chart is accelerating, you get paid to be long high beta risk assets relative to their low beta counterparts. You get paid to be long things like crypto and Bitcoin relative to cash and treasury bonds. However, when you're on the wrong side of the global growth cycle, you tend to lose money on both an absolute and real basis in those kinds of exposures. And the speed with which those assets reprice, both from a valuation and price perspective, you know, is really dictated by the speed of the normalization and growth and the speed of the normalization in policy. So, you know, the Fed's got a lot of cards in their hands. We suspect. Just based on some of these wage dynamics that they have yet to really kind of uh, articulate, they've talked about that employment rate. They haven't really talked about the reduction, a potentially more permanent reduction in labor supply, perpetuating longer-term wage inflation, and how that may ultimately, at the end of this early phase tightening process, may actually perpetuate higher inflation expectations. We haven't really seen them discuss that. So ultimately, they're going to have to acknowledge that. We suspect they might start to acknowledge it next Wednesday at the FOMC meeting. They'll certainly have to acknowledge it by the March FOMC meeting, and that might be it as it relates to the market pricing in more and more tightening. Uh, but from there, we're still going to have to deal with the slowdown and growth in inflation. Well, you said that the rotation between these style factors uh, just seems to be happening at such an incredible pace this time. Yeah, no, it's 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 been happening at an incredible pace, quite frankly, since June. Um, I've been you know I've been talking about this at nauseum, but you know this has been one of the more difficult, if not the most difficult, market to trade in my career. I've been doing this since the middle of two thousand nine after I graduated, and the reality is we've seen no real trending sector or style factor leadership. I use three months or more as a trend really since going back to June. You know since the reflation trade ended then, it's been a really difficult market to trade because on one hand you've had some sort of you know kind of short term cyclical bounces. And decays in growth, and mainly dealing with Delta, and now we're currently dealing with the Omicron kind of spike in terms of a, a decline in growth and potential uptick in growth. That we'll see in February and March, but the reality is that all that all those all that movement has created a lot of consternation and forcing a lot of rotation. But I'll say this: the rotation that we're currently seeing now, underneath the surface in the asset markets or in the equity markets here in the U.S. in particular, is actually one of it's actually quite positive. 
Um, you know, we're seeing a real big push towards pro-cyclicality. If you look at how we track uh, dispersion in the equity markets, uh, we look at it on a month-over-month sharp ratio basis. Um, you know, across 50-plus U.S. equity sectors and style factors and fang names to get a sense of sort of whether the market is you know gearing up for a material correction or gearing up for a big bounce. And we would argue um, the data continues to suggest it's actually gearing up for a big bounce. So we don't see people rushing from the equity markets. What we're seeing is institutional investors in mass all realizing that they have too much duration in the form of their tech holdings in their portfolios and selling the exact same names and the exact same days at the exact same hours to get into the exact same energy, financials, industrial stocks, et cetera. And eventually, once that process sort of takes its course in terms of getting their allocations are more in line with their their, their fundamental views, then you could actually see a positive uh, relief rally on the other side of this. But again, I think that relief rally is going to have to get sold. This will not be a year like 2021 or 2020 where the market just keeps you know making higher highs and higher lows. If anything, at best, we're going to chop around. At worst, you could easily see a 20% correction in the middle of this year. 20%. Oh, yeah. I think this is a much worse situation, in my opinion, uh, than Q418. I mean, a lot of folks watching the show know that we made the call in Q418. Hey, look, we think this market could tank. Um, and that was a very good call. And uh, many of the same dynamics, if you think about growth and inflation, slowing off cyclical peaks, Fed tightening, sort of being on a, a runaway train with respect to tightening. And I, I would argue Jay Powell learned from that lesson in terms of not being on this sort of preset policy tightening course and not receiving and, and interpreting uh, signals from the market. But the reality is there's no there's no exit ramp from this sort of tightening that they put themselves on for two reasons. One, it's based on our analysis of the labor market, which I think is as, as good as most. There's no there's not going to be any reason for them to, to pivot dovishly for at least three, four, maybe even five or six quarters. I mean, they, yeah. the labor market is just way too tight for them to actually, you know, in terms of how the, the speed with which the labor market tends to change, it's not going to be able to deteriorate fast enough over the next few quarters for them to ease. But I would argue there's another uh, component of why they can't pivot. It's uh, so much of the tightening is already priced in. If you look at euro dollar futures curves, if you look at sort of just you know sell side expectations for quantitative tightening, if they don't deliver, you're going to perpetuate higher inflation expectations and just shoot yourself in the foot. So not only do they have to deliver, but they actually have to signal more in terms of actually really starting to tighten financial conditions. And we suspect by the time we get into that March meeting, um, they'll be kind of at the crescendo of signaling more. And that, in our opinion, could be a, a jump off point for some volatility in asset markets. You know, I read an interesting uh, line on my Bloomberg terminal this morning. It was just in a, a throwaway reference in a story, and it said something about uh, about how there was optimism uh, about tightening beyond a quarter of a point. Now, think about that statement, right? That's a pretty paradoxical thing. Uh, if you think about the traditional way that markets price uh, monetary policy, this notion, as you say, uh, that this tightening is very much priced in, and the expectation would be quite negative uh, if, for some reason, that were not to happen. Yeah, I would argue, I mean... It might be positive at the margins for asset markets if we stop just based on you know recent conditions. If they start pivoting back towards dovishness, that I would argue that's probably self-defeating because all that really means is that hey, look, at some point someone's going to have to get in here and clean up this inflation mess. Whether, like I said, whether the Fed wants to deal with it now and suffer the sort of you know nearer term you know kind of tightening of financial conditions that needs to presage presage that. Or they're going to have to do it later, a la Paul Volcker, kick out, you know, uh, the, what's my man's name, Arthur Burns, and replace him with Paul Volcker, and they were jacking rates up to 15.5%. Again, that's not that's not a likely scenario. I think they're serious about uh, dealing with the inflation pressure, if only because of the composition of the Fed's board has changed uh, in a direction of more hawks 
people who've been calling out these build the build up of inflation pressures, you know, going back to, you know, early part of last year. I haven't heard the name Arthur Burns in some time. Darius, I want to just do one other thing before we move on, because we've got a lot of questions that are coming into us. Uh, but I wanted to ask you one other thing in relation to what Roger said. He was talking about this sequencing and, and how you think about uh, all of the policy actions right now that the Fed is undertaking and, and contemplating undertaking. So you've got forward guidance. Uh, you've got the future rate path uh, normalization trajectory. Uh, additionally, you have, obviously, the taper, which is well underway. And then you have the unwind of the balance sheet. It seemed to be that Roger was suggesting that those might be compressing uh, to basically take on a great deal more policy normalization in a shorter period of time than maybe perhaps many had thought was going to happen. Yeah, no, look, they're doing the opposite of what they've been doing for the past you know, couple of years. I mean, we'd never seen the Fed cut rates and go to 100 plus billion dollars of open-ended or you know, it was open-ended at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, go to that size of policy easing so quickly. And so we're effectively just doing it in reverse. We're tightening as fast as we've seen the Fed do in terms of pulling all these various levers um, in order to enact that change. I mean, look, we can't cry. You know, this is we can't cry over the spilled milk as investors. You pull up a three, four-year chart of any risk asset, and you've been aided and abetted. Your PL, your your portfolio of value has been aided and abetted by some of the most wacky monetary policy in history. And more importantly, we've had one of the biggest cyclical upswings in history in U.S. history in terms of the, uh, the kind of the pandemic recovery off the lows of, of April of 2020 that was also aided and embedded by some of the wackiest fiscal policy in U.S. history. I think that 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 bill they passed in March, um, the, the kind of the final COVID relief bill, um, the Biden bill, that's going to go down as arguably the worst piece of legislation in U.S. history in terms of what it actually did in terms of exacerbating supply chains you know, kind of putting the kibosh on some more thoughtful, longer-term infrastructure development. Like, it just it's just a, a, a very short-sighted, quite frankly, really stupid piece of legislation that they wanted to get in there and get a political win on. And unfortunately, it's cost a lot of really low-income Americans, you know, a lot of purchasing power and a lot of pain. And I used to be one of those, uh, those Americans who understands what losing purchasing power, you know, when you're already shopping in the 99 cent, you know, aisle at the grocery store, what that actually means. And so, Hopefully, if anybody at the Fed is listening, get, get, this, get this taken care of. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, Darius, I want to go and hit some of these questions. Let's do a speed round real quick. Let's hit a couple of these, get them done, because we've got some really great questions coming in, as always, when you're on the show. Uh, first one, Paul Hart, Real Vision site. Uh, Darius, do you see the 10-year rate going back to the bottom of the range? Uh, and he mentions one spot six five uh, as his key level. Looks like we're trading right now on a yield basis on the ten year at one spot eight four nine. Yeah, there's yeah, absolutely. So when, when when the market is done pricing in the the, the full gamma flip with respect to Fed tightening, rates will peak and they'll start to go down from there. Yeah. Here's one that comes to us from Jeff B from the Real Vision site. Treasuries are typically up in times of uncertainty. How does this change with inflation? And what would be the best hedge? Yeah, so I still think Treasury bonds will offer their diversification benefits. Right now, Treasury bonds are going down in price because the market is pricing in a cyclical upswing in growth at the same time we're tightening monetary policy. What happens when we're tightening monetary policy 
um, where you're pricing in a cyclical downswing in growth, that actually does flip the math uh, pretty substantially. So uh, just a quick spat on that. When the Fed is doing QT and what we call reflation, that's growth up and inflation up simultaneously, uh, the long bond tends to decline 1% on an annualized basis. When they're doing QT and deflation, that's where growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously as we have it projecting started in March, roughly in March of this year. That's the, the annualized return on the long bond is plus 7%. So um, we expect to be buying more bonds at some point in the next few months. This one comes to us from Mark with a C from the Real Vision site. Uh, isn't Powell going to be under huge amounts of political pressure as the midterms approach? Yes, but he's not going to be under more pressure than our previous president, who was constantly calling him out and tweeting at him by name on a you know, <laughs> near daily basis for, for, for tightening monetary policy throughout 2018. So I, don't, I think Powell can handle it. That's not going to be an issue. Uh, and finally, this one comes to us from Bilawa Ahmed from YouTube. Uh, do you see tech earnings will turn around on the NASDAQ, perhaps starting next week? Yeah, they could. I mean, I think that if we see the cyclical bounce that I would expect, uh, maybe we bought, we bottom next Monday, Tuesday after OPEX, or bottom on next Wednesday's Fed catalyst, who knows? I do expect to see a, a, a local low made next week that we can recover from. And one of the dynamics that'll be sort of supportive, if you talk about the narrative that'll build as the price is changing, because price cha- the narrative chases price. Price doesn't chase the narrative. The, the narrative chases price. And so the, one of the, those narratives that could build is as we progress throughout earnings season, that you're starting to see some better beats and better data, you know, certainly outside of the context of, you know, this, this, I keep calling it the Fed tightening gamma. In the last month, we basically just did a whole 50 basis point kind of jump condition in the entire euro dollar curve as a function of the Fed doing Q, we're introducing this QE dynamic and ultimately kind of introducing the, the March rate hike dynamic. So, you know, we're going to, the speed of that change in terms of moving towards incremental tightening will slow down. And once that slows down, we'll, investors will start to be able to look around and say, oh, wait, there's earnings. Oh, wait, oh, uh, Omicron's already peaked. You know, we, you know, that's good. You know, they'll start to look for more positive news right. if the market behaves in, in that way. Narrative chases price. I love it. Darius, uh, we're almost out of time here. I'm afraid we're about to run over, but I want to give you 30 seconds here to wrap it up. Give us a final sense, key takeaways for our audience. Yeah, so I'll, I'll force myself to do this in threes. Number one, um, probably be buying the dip sometime next week. Uh, number two, probably be selling that rip sometime in March, we'll call it, let's say March or April. And then uh, prepare for uh, prepare for some uh, some volatility. It's going to be a tough year to risk manage. Uh, definitely go find yourself somebody you trust who can help you with risk management. Uh, hasn't had <laughs> investors prior to last June. There hasn't been a lot of risk management so to, needed to be done. So I think investors are going to have to brush off some dust on some books on that. Darius, as always, great to do this with you. And as always, a strong close. Crisp, three points. Uh, thanks again for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing, everyone. Maggie will be back tomorrow with Tony Greer. As always, the conversation continues on the exchange. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.